0: Hello and welcome to The Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we are in a bonus episode of the podcast series. We are continuing our review of the Nuremberg Trials in Nuremberg, Germany after the Second World War. It's now October of 1946, one year after the beginning of the Nuremberg Trials. One of the prominent journalists covering the trials was Dame Rebecca West. She was a legendary contributor to the New Yorker magazine in the group that included A.J. Liebling and Janet Flanner. Rebecca West wrote about the Nuremberg trials in a New Yorker article called A Reporter at Large, The Birch Leaves Falling, and I'd like to share some of that with you. It was published on October 26, 1946, and it begins, It was the last two days of the Nuremberg trial that I went abroad to see Those men who had wanted to kill me and my kind, and who had nearly had their wish, were to be told whether I and my kind were to kill them and why. Quite an occasion. But for most of the time, my mind was distracted from it by bright, sharp, smaller things. Consider the marvels of air travel. It was necessary, and really necessary, that a large number of important persons, including the heads of the armed and civil services, should go to Nuremberg and hear the reading of the judgment, because in no other conceivable way could they gather what the trial had been about. Long, long ago, the minds of all busy people who did not happen to be lawyers had lost touch with the proceedings. The daily reports inevitably concentrated on the sensational moments when the defendants sassed authority back. To follow the faint obtrusions of the legal issues in the press took the type of mind that reads its daily portion and never misses, and indeed even a tougher type of mind than that, since this duty had to be discharged without the fear of hell as inspiration. That kind of integrity carries one irresistibly to the top of the grocery store and almost no further. The positions fall to people with pliant minds, who drop every habit if it is not agreeable or immediately serviceable. These were all at sea about Nuremberg, and it was a pity, for English public opinion had gone silly about it. There had surged up a wave of masochistic malaise akin to the Keynesian scorn for Versailles after the last war, which spread and split over any attempt to cope with the situation of victory. There was need for the influential to talk some sense on the subject. It was unfortunate that these responsible persons, as well as the newspaper correspondents, had to travel to Nuremberg by air. This amounted to a retrogression to the very early days of railway transport. Planes carry so few passengers, and so many pilots have been demobilized. Nuremberg is between three and four hours' flight from London. But to attend a sitting of the court that began on Monday, September 30th, I had to leave on the previous Tuesday. When I saw that my army orders were in triplicate. I knew that I was entering a man's world in the pejorative sense. It was decreed that I should fly from an airport half an hour from my home in the country, and I applauded that. Nothing, I said, could be more convenient. I was checked and chilled. I must, it seemed, report at an office in the heart of London and that at six in the morning. But why? It had to be. I looked into the face of something as immutable as the will of God, but not as sensible as that. Well, could I leave my bag in that office overnight? No, I could not. How was I to get a bag at an hour when there are no taxis and no buses to an office nowhere near a subway? They did not know. It is true that I have a husband who can wake at any hour at will, and that we had our automobile in town. But how did authority know that? How did authority know that I am the kind of woman who, finding that neither my club nor any hotel could give me a room, would spend the night on the sofa of my club card room? A motor bus took the plane load of us out of London night into country dawn, passing in the ghostly twilight, a corner of where, one breezy April afternoon when I was in my twenties, I had helped Joseph Conrad chase his bowler hat across the road. He had seemed to me then an exciting, exotic, writing of such unusual things as danger. Now, as the plain rose in the leaden sky, we looked down on a land that was recording. After this worst of summers, a disaster that restored one's self-respect because it was not made by statesmen or soldiers or any men at all, but by nature. In the fields, sheaves that should have stood in harvest time like stocky golden girls and then been gathered in were crouched and drab like old scrub women and would never know the honor of a barn. Half-finished ricks heeled over on their narrow bases, the pastures looked quite lusterless. Across the North Sea, in Belgium and Holland, the ditches that should have scored fine silver lines were broad, gross troughs of sullen water. There would be much less milk this winter, fewer eggs, less meat, perhaps less bread." There would be financial disaster in these little sodden villages, these farms standing in black smears of mud. The plane seemed a fortunate molecule, immune from the dowdy sorrows beneath. It was an illusion. Nearly all the passengers except myself and another correspondent were industrialists and technicians on their way to Hamburg on important business. The airport at Hamburg was underwater. A man's world, a man's world. I was in it, all right. When I got to Berlin, grave young men said impatiently that I must get on the next plane going back to London because they had no idea how to send me to Nuremberg. I laid my army orders down on the table, but nobody would look at them. Nobody ever did, then or afterward. When the young men turned the other way, I got into an automobile that had been sent to fetch another correspondent, and the pair of us went to a hotel in the Kurfürstam, which is used as a press camp, and there they knew all about me. Yes, of course I could go to Nuremberg. Either I could go by American plane from the Tempelhof Airport, which was doubtful, as there was such a competition for seats, or I could go by train by way of Frankfurt, which would take about eighteen hours. A man's world, a man's world. The bright civil servant had fitted me out with a letter of credit for forty pounds. Authority sent me next morning on a drive to a little villa, cozily red with Virginia Creeper, seven miles out in the suburbs, where there was a pay office which I could cash it. It couldn't. Some new currency regulations had come into being that prevented one's cashing anything anywhere. I needed dollars to pay for my passage to Nuremberg. I could not buy them legitimately. I had to go to another part of Berlin and buy British script, a kind that is valid only in the British zone, where I was not going. My instinct then told me to go and sit in a bar. When the link between alcohol and the currency regulations had declared itself and I had acquired my dollars, I realized that I was, so far as authority was concerned, going to stay in Germany for the rest of my life. It was obvious that my fares and my keep would far exceed the sum of money I had been allowed to export. I rang up the English newspaper, which had sent me abroad, They told me to draw on their resident correspondent in Nuremberg. This gave me confidence for about a quarter of an hour, at the end of which time I discovered that the same new currency regulations had forbidden any correspondent to draw upon more than $15 a week, which is less than he could conceivably live upon. During this time of financial perturbation, I was continually being told that I would never succeed in getting on a plane to Nuremberg, but would have to reconcile myself to the long train journey. In the morning, I left Berlin by a plane with five empty seats. The others were occupied by a number of currency experts who, I gathered, were going to Nuremberg to discuss the fact that some of the new regulations, not those which had affected me, meant nothing at all. During the journey, they made the same discovery about several other regulations, which they had apparently thought till then were all right. In Nuremberg, the press camp was another example of the poignancy of works of art under conquest. The camp was the Schloss, belonging to the Fabers, the pencil manufacturers and according to the old-fashioned custom, which persisted in Germany long after it had been abandoned in England and in the United States, it was built beside the factory from which the family fortune was derived. In its heyday, it must have been intolerable, particularly if one had a sense of the Fabers as human beings. A clue to them could be found in the immense grounds, which were laid out in what is known in Germany as an English park, though actually no park in England is closely planted with shrubs and trees. Now this mansion was punished by the presence of a crowd of correspondents, which on physical grounds alone was an offense to the genius of the mansion. The protocol of its hospitality must once have been stupendous. Only members of certain families would have been invited, and they would have arrived with valets and ladies' maids, and after a reception by the host and hostess would have been passed along the colossal corridors by clusters of servants to suites where beds banked with superfluous pillows shone with the highlights of fine linen. In the room where I slept, there were nine hospital beds. On one side of me was a French correspondent, a lovely girl the color of cambric tea, with crenellated hair that spoke of North Africa and with the bold and gracious manners of a wild princess. And on the other was another French correspondent, a girl pale and fairish and eager, but always a little tired, as is often the case with those who spent their adolescence in the resistance movement. Nothing can have been so offensive to the mansion as the French women correspondents. The most conspicuous of them was Madeline Jacob with her superb haggard Jewish face, her long black locks so oddly springing from a circle of white hair in the center of her scalp, her tumbled white waist and pleated skirt of a tartan that was not only non-Scottish but almost anti-Scottish, her air of contentious intellectual gaiety as of one who has been dragged backward through a hedge of ideas and has enjoyed every minute of it, She was always the first to catch the eye of the living observer in the crowded dining room. She must have been the first and the worst to any ghostly observer. The women for whom this mansion was built lived inside their corsets as inside towers. Their corfurs were almost as architectural. All their contours had to be preserved by an iron poise. They would have refused to believe that these ink-stained gypsies had in fact invaded their halls because they had been on the side of order against disorder, stability against incoherence. How much easier would we journalists have found our task at Nuremberg if only the universe had been less fluid, if anything had been absolute, even so simple a thing as the sight we had gone to see, the end of the trial. And we saw it, with observation wedded by practice and our sense of the historic importance of the occasion. We let nothing that happened in the court go by us. We formed opinions about it with edges sharp as honed razors. We knew when the judges issued a decree that the defendants were not to be photographed while they were being sentenced, that it was a silly and sentimental interference with the rights of the press yet about that our opinions were perhaps not so definite as appeared in the talk of the bar. The correspondents who had been at Nuremberg a long time were not so sure about this decree as those who had come for just these last two days. The correspondents who had been in Germany a long time did not appear to like to talk about it very much. It seemed that when one had never seen a man, one does not find anything offensive about the idea of photographing him while he is being sentenced to death, but that if one had seen him often, the idea becomes unattractive. It is not exactly pity that takes one. One would not alter the sentence of death. The future must be protected. The ovens where the innocent were baked alive must remain cold forever. The willing stokers, so oddly numerous it appears, must be discouraged from lighting them again. But when one sees a man day after day, the knowledge of his approaching death becomes, in the real sense of the word, wonderful. One wonders at it every time one thinks of it. I remembered that I did not care at all the first time I heard William Joyce sentenced to death, but that the second time I was stirred and astonished, and that the third time I knew awe. The day he was hanged, I found myself looking at my hand and thinking in it perplexity that some day it would not move because I willed it, and that on that day, I would have no will, I would not be there, and Joyce was a kind of partner in my thought. Not an object for pity, it is an intensification of the feeling we have in the fall, when the leaves drop. The leaves are nothing to us, but the melancholy, the apprehension grows. It was like that in other parts of Nuremberg, where the lawyers lived who had seen every session of the court, they had all been waiting for this day when the judgment would be delivered and the defendant sentenced, for it meant that they would turn their backs on the moldy aftermath of murder and get back to the business of living. But now that this day had come, they were not enjoying it. All automobiles were stopped now on the main roads for search and scrutiny of the occupants by the military police. At one barrier, two automobiles were halted at the same time, and a visitor traveling in one saw that in the other was the engaging wife of one of the English judges, a tall Scandinavian with that awkwardness which is more graceful than grace, that shyness which is more winning than any direct welcome. They exchanged greetings, and the visitor said, I shall be seeing you in court tomorrow. The other looked as if she had been slapped "'across the high cheekbones. "'Oh, no,' she said, "'oh, no, I shall not be in court tomorrow.' "'She had attended almost all other sessions of the court. "'Around the house of another judge, "'a line of automobiles waited all through the evening of the day "'before the judgment session, "'and passers-by knew that the judiciary "'was having its last conference.' The judge's wife came to the window and looked out over the automobiles and the passers-by and far into the suburban woods that ring the house. She has kept into maturity the delicate and self-possessed good looks of a spirited girl, and ordinarily she refuses to let her appearance betray what she is thinking or feeling. But as she stared out into the darkening woods, It could be seen that the boredom she was suffering had something ghastly about it, and that she was living through a patch of time comparable to the interval between a death in the house and a funeral. There was another house still further away from Nuremberg, where this aversion to the consequences of the trial which was not disapproval of it, could be experienced. This, like the press camp, was a villa an industrialist had built beside his factory, but it was smaller and not so gross and had been the scene of a war of taste in which some of the victories had fallen to the right side. About this house and all the houses where the legal personnel lived, armed guards paced through the night, and searchlights shone into the woods, falling fiercely on the piebald trunks of the birch trees, the compactly contorted pines, the great pottery jars overflowing with red nasturtiums that marked the course of the avenues. Down through the strong brightness, there slowly drifted the yellow birch leaves all night long. There came the day of the judgment and the day of the sentences, and I was again aware that I was in a man's world. Life in Nuremberg was difficult in any case because of transport. The city is so devastated that the buildings used by the authorities are a vast distance apart, and one cannot walk. Cars are old and rapidly falling to pieces, and the drivers have been out there too long and care about nothing except going home. But when the great day came, there was added a new exasperation in the extreme congestion of the Palace of Justice. It was obviously possible that some Nazi sympathizers would try to get into the court and assassinate the consul and the judges, and it was obvious that the authorities would have to take special care in scrutinizing the passes of the correspondents and the visitors. I had seen myself having to stop at the entrance of the court and show my pass, whereupon a trained scrutineer would examine it under a strong light. Nothing so simple happened. Authority jammed the corridors with a solid mass of military policemen who again and again demanded passes and peered at them in a half-light. These confused male children would have been quite incapable of detecting a forged pass if they had been able to see it. But in this deep shadow, it was difficult to read print, much less inspect a watermark. This congestion of past demanding military policemen occurred at every point where it was necessary for correspondents to move freely, to look around and find their seats, to get in touch with their colleagues. At the actual entrance to the gallery, there was posted a new official to whom I took a savage dislike because he infringed on a feminine patent. Although he was male and a colonel, he had the drooping bosom and careworn expression of a nursing mother, and he stared at my quite obviously valid pass minute after minute with the moonish look of a woman trying to memorize the pattern of a baby's booty. Was I irritable? Yes. I and all England, all Europe, are irritable because we are controlled by and sick of organization. And perhaps he was slow and awkward because all people in organization, not of the scheming and tyrannic sort, are sick of exercising control on resentful subjects. What did we see in the courtroom? Everybody knows by now. It is no longer worth telling. It was not worth telling if you knew too little. It could not be told if you knew too much. The door at the back of the dock shut on the last of the prisoners who had worked their final confusion by showing a heroism to which they had no moral right, who had proved that it is not true that the bully is always a coward and that not even in that respect is life simple. Then the court rose, rose up into the air, rose as if we were going to fly out the window. People hurried along the corridors into each other's offices, saying goodbye, goodbye to each other, goodbye to the trial, goodbye to the feeling that was like fall. That was if they were the great, of course, for only the great could get out of Nuremberg. The lesser would have to wait at the airport or the railway station for days as the fog took a hand in the congestion and the planes could not leave the ground safely in the mornings, and more and more people tried to get home by train. On the floor of every office, there were packing cases. The typewriters had to go home. The stationery had to go home. The files had to go home. The greater bent down to say goodbye to the lesser on their knees beside the packing cases. The lesser beamed up at the greater. It was a party. It was like going off for a cruise only instead of leaving home you were going home. It was grand, it was happy. It was as positively good as things seem only in childhood when nobody doubts that it is good when the school term comes to an end. Yet if one could not leave Nuremberg, this gaiety did not last intact after the sun went down. Then one heard words that brought back what one felt about the end of the trial, when one did not turn one's mind away from it. A man said, Damn it all! I have looked at those men for ten months. I know them as I know the furniture in my room. Oh, damn it all! That vague, visceral mournfulness... That sympathy, felt for the doomed flesh as for the frosted flower, settled on the mind steadily during the days that passed after the return from Nuremberg as the executions drew nearer. It was dispersed suddenly by the news of Goring's suicide. A dozen emotions surprised me by their strength— The enormous clown, the sexual quiddity, with the smile that was perhaps too wooden for mockery, and perhaps not, had kicked the tray out of the hands of the servant who was carrying it. The glasses had flown into the air and splintered. The wine of humiliation we had intended him to drink had spilled on the floor. It was disconcerting to realize that the man's world in which Nuremberg had had its being had, in effect, been just as crazy as it had looked. All to no purpose had the military police fallen over my feet, and had I fallen over theirs. All to no purpose had the colonel with the bosom brooded pendulously over my pass. The cyanide had freely flowed. I felt fear. Whether this romantic gesture would revive Nazism depended on the degree to which the people in the waterlogged Europe I had seen from the plain were preoccupied with the spoiled harvest and their lack of shoes. If their preoccupation was slight or desperate, they might equally play with the idea of restoring the Nazi regime. I remembered the incidental obscenities of Nuremberg, such as the slight smell that hung around the door of the room that housed the atrocity exhibits, the shrunken head of the Polish prisoner, the soap made from the concentration camp corpses, and the like. I remembered the vigor of some of the defendants and the passivity of the German people in the streets, blank paper on which anything could be written. But also there came a vague, visceral cheerfulness, applause for the flesh that had not accepted its doom, but had changed it to something else that made it a last proof of its strength, such as one might have felt for a beast that had been caught in a trap and that when its captors come, arches its back and makes a last stand. All the people I had seen fleeing from Nuremberg, who would be halfway across the world now, trying to forget the place, would be straightening up from whatever they had been doing and saying with a laugh before they could check themselves. Oh, that one! We always knew he would get the better of us yet. The Birch Leaves Falling by Dame Rebecca West. And you are listening to The Silver King's War.